in Luke chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we read, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Well, let's stop for a second. What happened at the Jordan River? If you just go back maybe just a a couple of pages and look at chapter um, 3, begin with verse 21. And it tells you what happened at the Jordan. It states, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. That's the context of why Jesus is leaving the Jordan. Something happened at the Jordan River, and he was baptized. And as he's baptized and come up out of the water, this voice comes down from heaven. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And if you look at the parallel passages from Matthew 3 and Mark chapter 1, we won't take the time to do that, but it gives us even more information. Why did Jesus? Why did he have to be baptized? And those passages taken as a whole tell us. Jesus said we have to to fulfill all what? Righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. He did it to do the Father's will. The Father desired it, and Jesus' plan was to do what his Father will. If you think about it also, it's sort of a prefigure of the importance of being baptized. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. When he's talked about baptism was the answer of a good conscience toward God. Not taking a bath, not getting physically clean, but an answer of a good conscience toward God. But also, as Jesus is baptized, there's a certain sense of recognition with this. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And when did this take place? After Jesus was baptized. I want to look at, hold on to Luke. I want you to go to John with me, John chapter 1. So just expand on this a little bit further for just a second before we move on. John chapter 1. This has to do with, of course, we know who baptized Jesus, or maybe you don't. I'm sorry, I don't mean to assume that. Uh, his relative, John. We call him John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Out in the wilderness, preaching the word of God. But notice the recognition John gives Jesus. Begin with verse 29. It states, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after he comes, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptized with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said it to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So a certain recognition going along with other things concerning Jesus' baptism. Now as we go back to Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus is returning home and the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Now Mark's account of this states that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And Mark also records where there were wild beasts there. So not a very nice place to be. That's where the Spirit is leading, driving Jesus at this point. Now look at verse 2. And being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So take a few minutes, if I may, to talk about being tempted. Another word here might be tested, to be put to the test. Jesus is going to be tempted. He's going to be put to the test. Well, what is temptation? Or what does it mean to be tempted? It means something that entices me. To be tempted is, I see something and I desire it really, really bad. It's enticing me. It's something that seduces me or has the quality to seduce me and you. That's what temptation is. And from a biblical standpoint, here's a verse, I think, that sums it up that you know very well from 1 John chapter 2. When John wrote, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. Lustful things. Prideful things. That's the enticer. That's the seducer. That's what's trying to get us to cross that line. But this is Jesus. Jesus can't be tempted, can he? Jesus can't be tested, can he? Let me quote Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, which states, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus can sympathize with our enticements. Jesus can sympathize with our seducements that come. Why? But was in all points tempted as we are. Jesus had choices. He was tempted, he was tested, and he had a choice to make. Now, the verse ends with three very, 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 very important words. Yet without sin. He didn't sin, but he was tempted, as we're going to see here in just a second. So temptation, per se, is not sin. Temptation can lead to sin. If you would hold on to Luke chapter 1, please, and go with me to James chapter 1. And I appreciate your patience because this is an important point that I think we need to get across before we go into G Satan trying to do what he's going to attempt to do with Jesus. James chapter 1. 
And we're going to be in verse 12. Again, with this thought in mind, to be tempted is not necessarily sin. It's to cross the line and let sin, that temptation, take hold of our lives. And James explains this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Enduring these temptations, fighting them to the end, and a crown of life awaits. But notice, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And there's the crossing of the line. We see it, and we give into it, and that gives birth to sin, and sin leads to, yeah, maybe it might be physical death. But I think the bigger context is spiritual death, a place nobody would want to go. But then going back to the text that was read by Dale, God gives us assurance that we can win over temptation. There's a way of escape, Paul told the Corinthians. Now, with that stated, Jesus was tempted 40 days by the devil, according to what Luke writes back in Luke chapter 4. Matthew's account seems to indicate it was after the 40 days when the temptation started. Either way, he's being tempted or going to be tempted by the devil and he has not eaten anything for 40 days in the wilderness. So obviously, he is hungry, very hungry, and here is where the enticement. Here is where the seducement begins. Jesus is hungry, so where does Satan begin? Where he begins with us, where we are the most vulnerable. So look at verse 3 and verse 4. And the devil said to him, said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here's temptation number one. And Satan's temptation is for Jesus to command a stone to become bread. He says, if you are the Son of God, if you are. Was there uncertainty in Satan's thoughts? No, I don't think so. H. Leo Bowles, in his commentary, states, you could take the word if and put since. Since you are the Word of God, could be read that way. Or maybe Satan, as ridiculous as this may sound, is trying to place that seed of doubt in Jesus' mind. Either way, Jesus or Satan wanted Jesus to turn stone to become bread and take care of that physical need that you have. What would have been the implications if Jesus had done that? Now think about that. Jesus, matter of fact, not much later after this event, will tell people that look to God. Look to God. Look to the Father for your physical and material needs. Satan is trying to persuade Jesus to use his powers that he did have to do. Well, how does Jesus respond? It is 
written. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And this should be our response. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the word of God. Anytime that people or situations tempt us, let's go back to the word of God. Hence, that's why Peter would write later on to to be ready to defend our Christian stance, our Christian position. And we are only ready to defend our Christian principles and stance when, as as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, to be diligent. That is, study to show yourself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Jesus says, it is written, not bread alone. It's not just the physical needs that are to be met. They have to be met, but we are more than that. We have a soul, and we have a spiritual side that must be considered. And to nourish that spiritual side, it's every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, the second temptation that Satan, the old devil, is going to try is found in verse 5 to verse 8. Now, read along with me, if you would, please, with that passage. In Luke chapter 4, it says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only you shall serve. So here's Satan's second temptation, power. It's really wrapped up in power. Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, the text states. Well, how did this happen? Was it an actual subjective thing? He actually showed him every kingdom of the world? Or is it more of a subjective type of thing? Maybe he just took him up on this mountain and, and showed him Palestine and all the surrounding regions and said, see all this? I can give you this and everything else and every other kingdom and civilization in the world. What was Satan's claim? His claim was he had the authority to give Jesus dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. With which one stipulation, worship me, Jesus. Worship me. I'll give you all this. Just worship me. Did Satan have the authority? Did Satan have the power to do what he was offering? Well, here's some things we do know. He had influence, right? Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says he, he's like a serpent. He's like a deceiver. Matter of fact, the text says he deceived them all. But also 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8 states he walks about like a roaring lion. Seeking who can just he can rip apart. But then Second Corinthians chapter eleven states he presents himself as an angel of light. There's many disguises, there's many ways that Satan can influence us. But did he have the authority? Did he have the power to say, Jesus, it's all yours? You just bow down and worship me. Would you please 
and the word of God is not a burden. Would you go to John chapter 8 with me? John chapter 8. And let's notice something that Jesus says about Satan talking to his countrymen, the Jews. And something he says about Satan, I think, that I, to me is telling about all this. In chapter 8, Jesus is debating with his countrymen, with the Jews, with the Israelites. And he keeps telling them, I know my, if you knew me, you would know the Father. They keep saying, we know the Father. We know him. He's our Father. Then they start bringing up, well, well, well you're really enslaved as you're a slave to sin. You're in bondage to sin. And, and then the Israelites say, we're not in bondage to sin. We're free men. We're whose children? Abraham's children. And here's what Jesus says, beginning with verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your small elf father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. But Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Now listen to this. You are your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And here it is to me. And here's why I think he could not give him that. He did not have the power. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. I think all he is trying to do is trip up Jesus. Again, as ridiculous as that may sound, he's tempting it. He's trying it. This indicates to me that, that Satan did not have this power, just trying to trick someone else to make someone else stumble and lose their soul. Jesus responds, It is written. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, back in Luke uh, chapter 4. Regardless if Satan could do this, and I don't think he could, deliver on this promise or not, Jesus did not go along with it. It is written, Worship God only. Jesus is emphatically stating, there is only one who is worthy of worship, the Lord your God. I'm going to watch the time since I went over last Sunday or last time I preached. But I really want to read a psalm. I had a whole list of things I wanted to talk about about worship. Why is God worthy of our worship? Well, he sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sin. Absolutely. That, that in and of itself is enough. But let's go back and see what a king writes about it. Would you go to Psalm 145 with me, please? Psalm 145. And it's a long reading, but listen to what David, 
King David says, at least in his mind, why God is worthy of worship. Excuse me. Psalm 145. It is an absolute beautiful reading. And it's a better commentary than I could give you myself. Begin with verse 1 of Psalm 45. I will praise you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. That's about ten sermons in that one song. But I think you get the gist of what King David is trying to get across. God's worthy. God is worthy of our praise and of our worship. And Jesus knew it, and that's what he's telling Satan. I'm not going to worship you. I'm worshiping God. There's only one God. And he is to be worshipped. Temptation number three. And the last one. Beginning of verse nine, back in Luke chapter four. Then he, Satan, brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Watch. Watch Satan. For it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said, It has been said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan's temptation is here, Jesus tests God. Prove it. Just see if he can really do it. Test him. Jerusalem and this pinnacle of the temple, uh, again, how does this happen? Josephus, the Jewish historian, 
records that the south portion of the temple, if I understood my research right, had a deep valley where you could hardly see the bottom. And one would get, this is Josephus' words, get giddy by looking down. It, it, it would make you dizzy just standing on that pinnacle and looking down. And that's what Satan is wanting Jesus to do. Go up that very top and throw yourself off. He says, if you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, this twice he's tried this, as if to say, prove you are the Son of God. Prove it right now. Prove it by throwing yourself off this temple. Satan then uses actual scripture to try to trip Jesus up, supposedly to make his claim. It is written, Satan says, if you can't beat him. And the passage Satan uses is Psalm 91, verse 11 and verse 12. It's the truth. He will give his angels charge over him. Uh, matter of fact, what's we'll in just a second? He would have kept him from dashing his foot. He could have done that. God could have done that. But this also teaches us a very, very, very valuable point. We can take God's word and misquote it. We can take God's word and misuse it. We can take God's word and rip it out of its context to try to make it mean something else. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to have any part of it. Jesus' response is, it has been said. In other words, it is written. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. He's not going to tempt God. He's not going to test God. And how? Because Jesus was to do this, it's going to show a real lack of faith in God. If we do that, it shows a lack of faith for us. Satan is asking Jesus to test God, to see if God can live up to what he's saying in Psalm 91. Could God have done that? Could God have said, okay, go ahead, Jesus, I'll do it? Yes, he could have. But that would have been tempting and testing. The second time the Israelites wanted water, Moses was supposed to do what? Speak to the rock, right? What did Moses do? He hit the rock. He struck the rock. Did water still come out? Yeah. God still provided. Did Moses pay a penalty for that? Huge. Huge consequences for what he did. God could still provide, but there's always going to be consequences. Think of the consequences if Jesus had jumped. But we know he did. He says, it is written, you don't do that. I'm not going to test God. Then verse 13, I've already just read it. Satan ended the temptations for now until an opportune time will come. Now, how hard was this on Jesus? Do you think he just cruised through all this? If you go and read the parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, this was such an event. It was such an ordeal in Jesus' life. After this, after Satan leaves, those texts state that angels came down and ministered to Jesus. That's how big of a deal this was. That's how hard it was on him. Just a few applications to make from this story. Some things that we can take from this and apply to our life today. When Jesus was tempted, what did he do? It is written. It is written. 
it is written. Or you have said, it is written. Jesus used the power of the Word of God to help him endure temptations. And there is power there. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul stated that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel is so power, powerful, and we read it and we study it and we apply it and we obey it, it saves us from our sins. In Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 12 states that, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It even pierces down into the soul. It, it discerns our heart and our intent like a mirror. It lets us know where we stand before God. That's how powerful the Word of God is. But also, we all have the second thing to apply here, and this really applies to all of us. We all have our enticer. Every one of us in this room individually has that something, that thing, that sin that we are so easily trapped by. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2 states that. I have mine, you have yours. And sometimes maybe we do cross that line when we're enticed, when we're seduced, and it really looks good. The fruit really looks good. We make a context with Adam and Eve. But the third application here is we have the Word of God to help us. We are being warned, beware, sin's knocking at the door, don't let it get you. Satan can be defeated. We've already referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a way out. God has promised a way of escape, and we can find it, but Satan can be defeated. In James chapter 4 and verse 17 states, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll do what, church? He'll run. He'll flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But now, it's a bigger picture. And here's the beauty of the last book in our Bibles in the New Testament, Revelation. Victory. Satan's already lost. Oh yeah, we've got battles. Every single day we have to fight these battles. But Satan is already lost. The victory is ours. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the beauty of Jesus. And that's the beauty of why Jesus said three times, no, 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 Satan. You're not going to get me to do it. I've got a job and I've got a mission. Satan went away until an opportune time came. That opportune time did come. And there were plenty of opportunists there to help him out, to give him what he wanted. And the result was the Son of God having everyone turn against him and being executed for the sins of us all. I would love to read, I'd like to finish with this passage. If everyone would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because on the surface, Satan won. Just on the surface, that's what it looks like, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to begin with verse 21. It's really in the middle of a context, but for, for time's sake, this will suffice. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 21, it states, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus was tempted, he was not about to turn his back on the Lord, on God, excuse me, on the Father. He committed himself to him righteously, but he goes on. Verse 24, who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus died on the cross. And at that opportune time, these opportunists think we got rid of him. He's gone but have returned to the shepherd and overseer. How can we return to a shepherd and overseer that's dead? We Christians do not make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to lay a wreath, to lay flowers at Jesus' tomb. And every Christian knows why. He's not there. The tomb's empty. And three beautiful words, and here's Satan, you lose Satan, by these three beautiful words. He is risen. When it looks like Satan had won, God says, no, you didn't. I'm bringing back my son in all his glory, and Jesus is going to come back one day in all his glory. And whose side are you on? Are you on Satan's side? Are you on Jesus' side? Now you've got a choice to make right now and don't let Satan get in your heart and make you sit there when something needs to be done. If you need to become a Christian, if you need to talk about sin in your life right now or later on or whenever, but if you are ready right now, won't you take care of that as we stand and see?